You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Standing in Two Worlds. I'm Avram Kivalevich, and I'm joined uh, under severe lockdown, Dr. Sam Juni uh, in Yerushalayim. Dr. Juni, uh, the last couple of weeks as we've been speaking under the shadow of Yom Noroyim and the ideas of tshuva and change, and uh, after Yom Kippur, we spoke about also very meaty issues. And many people have, have said that the podcast is entertaining and interesting, but very, very uh, stark in terms of its uh, its challenges of what's w- what it is that we've been discussing. So I thought maybe as a change of pace, uh, without uh, diluting the quality, so to speak, we would maybe talk a little bit about another question I've been getting, which is who is Dr. Sam Juni? Of course, we've known each other for so many years, but many people are being introduced to you uh, for the first time here. And um, they've gotten a little bit of knowledge about you from you've discussed your father and we've discussed your daughter a little bit and they know sort of what you're about and things that you've done. But I, I thought maybe we could speak about the same way as your hero. Uh, I don't know if that's the wrong term, but someone, your teacher, Freud, we know so much about his personal life. We know so much about how his studies were intertwined with issues that were happening with his own practice in life. Um, and, and that's become part, I think, of the of the story of who he is. I think uh, it'd be interesting to, to, to hear some issues that you have dealt with in your own life about yourself. I'm not talking about your psychosis and other things. I'm talking about perhaps medical and other issues and things that you've been dealing with and that you've dealt with your whole life and, and some reflections that you have about that. I hope the question was not too broad, but we already discussed where I think you're going to be going on this. So, Dr. Juni, become an open book for us a little bit. Okay, madam, I'm happy to be here. And, okay, so you, I heard some complaint there, suddenly, that reality is stark, and reality is pretty stark, and COVID is pretty stark. And I don't know if I consider myself stark, but... Um, I don't think that my personal life is that much uh, um, of interest to people in general, but I, def- at any rate, I define my personal life in terms of issues that I interact with. So I'll be happy to talk about some issues, make it a little bit lighter than the um, dark issues we've talked about for a while. So we'll talk something about me and then branch off to the issues that I think are salient. So, so let me just introduce myself, okay? I am the youngest, the younger of two brothers in the family. Um, we, we were born in the tail end, I mean, just coming out of the Holocaust. So I consider myself a child of the Holocaust, and I've been haunted by it ever, ever since I started at the gate. And the second major package I've been carrying is being the younger brother to somebody who has a much higher IQ than I do and is much more original than I am. Although I'm a pretty smart dude myself, but nothing compared to the kind of, um, you know, innovation that my brother has. So putting those two together, what you eventually end up with is the typical younger child profile that we have in, in, in personality theory. 
And it means that um, you start off basically, let's say in my case, somebody is two years older. So if I start off at age one, this guy is three years old. So he's three, three times as old as I am and three times as capable and gifted, even not considering the difference in endowment. Okay, so here's somebody who's much more advanced and you're constantly competing. You're starting off with a position of inferiority and you, the only chance you have of um, showing up, so to speak, the superior um, sibling is by shtick. So my, 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 much of my life has been devoted to shtick or innovations that are sleight of hand or a way to get around obstacles, which offhand you can't because you cannot compete with someone who's two grades ahead of you when you're in grade one, or is that much? It's, it's a difficult um, situation. So I've, um, one of the things that I've always tried to do without knowing about it is to make myself special or different. And that gives me a card saying, I am different, I'm ahead. And of course, it's not just competing with a sibling. It basically translates to your entire orientation of how you deal with other people you come across as someone who has something special to offer, something different to offer, and that kind of colors you in a certain way. So I'm going to focus, I'm going to start... And can I just focus. interrupt you just for a second? Would you say, yes. and as you know, uh, Sam, you know, I'm also the youngest of, of my uh, brothers yes. and sister. Would you say that this is something common, uh, the common aspect of the youngest child? What you have done yes. is you're going to see this pattern by a lot of youngest children? You, you see this in a lot of youngest children who are gifted enough to pull it off. The other thing you see with youngest children are those who threw in the towel very early and said, there's no way I can compete, so I might as well to be spoiled, be a brat, be a, uh, you know, a telltaler or something like that, and you get nowhere. So that's a split, but mostly there is this um, a constant a battle from an inferior position to try to surmount it. And these people end up being quite original, you know, present company included, quite original as a way of trying to prove themselves because, you know, the guy ahead of you keeps getting older and keeps getting more information. Of course, that stops being very relevant once you get out of adolescence. But once you're in that mindset, you can't get rid of it. You cannot get rid of it. Okay, so let's, let's, let me just focus on something and we'll... I'll try to illustrate what this is all about in a rather light fashion. So I have a genetic um, blessing, so to speak, of being colorblind. As, wait, wait. as does my brother, by the way. Right. But we'll talk about me. Okay, so I have um, severe limitations in distinguishing a number of colors from each other. Um, red, green, I don't even know what the colors are. I give them my <laughs> own names. And it's, it's quite interesting because I grew up in a... Um, basically from childhood in a impoverished post-Holocaust Hasidic type environment where colors did not exist. You know, we really existed in a black and white world. Um, well, there, yes, there was no color TV. Um, people in uh, our environment did, did not wear anything other than black and white. And not just because they couldn't afford it, but because that's not the thing to do. You don't want to appear like someone who is a member of various kinds of ethnic um, communities that lived in our midst. You want to be someone who is obviously traditionally Jewish. So it didn't really come to the front. And I would say that in general, in the Hasidic community and even the Haredi community nowadays, the percentage of non colorblind people is much less than the overall population. The overall population is about 15% of men. In these, in these areas, 
it's much, much less. People don't know about it because it doesn't, it doesn't become an issue. So I can tell you, for instance, my brother found out he was colorblind when he was like 18 years old or something. He bought a certain tie and they said to him, Anachem, what's with this tie? And I said, why? It's kind of blue. And they said, no, it's not blue. And he found out that way. I found it out much earlier. I found that actually in grade school, when the teacher came in with a strip spectrum of different colors and said, who wants to arrange these colors in order? And I said, sure, I'll arrange them. And then I arranged them in three different clusters. I said, here's one cluster. I basically read, this is in in hindsight, I went from um, red, orange, yellow, and then I arranged a different cluster, which is more or less um, the green area. And then I arranged another cluster going from blue to violet. And I said, these are three clusters that obviously exist in continuum, but they're not related to each other. So of course, Juni go to principal's office, which is where I live half of my time in grade school. And if they assumed I was a troublemaker. And I said, I told my mom, you know, this time I wasn't trying to make trouble. I was real. And she said, really? So the next time we went to the eye doctor, we figured it out. I'm colorblind. My mother found that very threatening because I am basically, in term, and from my mother's side, I'm basically the first non-rabbi who existed in their entire lineage. And my mother's father and her her mother's father and her mother's mother's father were all major postkin in Dayanim, which has um, raised some very interesting questions in terms of some of the psukim they could have given in various areas in Yeridea where a color is very salient. So, so, you're, so you're saying that this, this genetic anomaly of not being able to discern the colors isn't just Menachem Yuni and Sam Juni. No, it actually, it so, actually, it actually, if you believe, was true about the Weisses as well. That the Weisses were uh, were, were like, all colorblind. Most likely, my mother's father, and some of less of a chance of my mother's mother's father. And these were all major Dayonim, and it makes me a little bit skeptical about the various succum they may have handed out. <laughs> But I am not incredulous because nobody would dare uh, contradict the Dayan under whose training you are, let's say in Maris or in Shrita. So, of course, it went along okay. My mother never accepted the fact because she knew the implications. So she thought this is just another one of my shtick. Okay, okay. Well, without getting too graphic, just for our, our listeners who, and we do have listeners, of course, thanks to you, Dr. Juni, who are not necessarily people that were raised in the areas of Yoridea, but there are areas about when a woman is menstruating, and we're not sure if it's menstrual blood or not. Uh, it might be, it might not be, it might be some other sort of something that's being exuded from her body. So it's important to be able to go to the rabbi or, you know, it's become now more common to actually have uh, women, you know, etzet and things like that. But in those days, every every Mara, including when I was growing up, went to the Rav and the Rav would have to actually examine what uh, what what were the colors of the stain that was coming out of the woman's body and whether it was the red or brown color that would indicate that she was in a state of what we call tumma and she was therefore not allowed to co- uh, cohabit with her husband or not. So um, it is a pretty important issue because if, if, if one of those Rabbonim would say the color is fine uh, and it really wasn't based on the idea of what color schemes are, you're talking about a, a very weighty uh, prohibition. So that's a pretty interesting, I find that quite interesting that they would, 
that they might have not knew they were colorblind and been paskening on Maris without knowing that. That would be very, that, that's a big Kiddush to me. Right. And other one that I thought of that's not as, as a um, far-fetched to outside listeners is ideas of, um, of shkita and um, animals, whether they're kosher or not, where they basically inspect to see whether the animal had a disease that was fatal. And I assume colors are relevant there as well. But again, that's that's your field. I don't want to step okay. on your toes. You, know, yes, you don't have to. I found it... Okay. So at any rate, um, so what I managed to do at some level is convert my, um, shall we say, handicap. And definitely, it wasn't a handicap in the beginning, but I can tell you that I had a very hard time in chemistry in college. And in fact, I was going for pre-med. And the my bitter experiences in chem lab basically got me away from pre-lab. I mean, I guess it's psych- psychology's game and psychiatry's <laughs> game that I stepped out of there. But I was going to be a straightforward proctologist or podiatrist or I don't know, pediatrician or whatever they do. And, you know, I couldn't do it. And even in my own experience, I have one daughter who has very narrow eustachian tubes and used to get air infections every couple of days. And I would slap with the pediatrician. And the guy would say, Sam, what's wrong with you? Why don't you buy yourself an otoscope? He says, here, look into the ear. You can see it's red. And I say, no, I cannot see it's red. So it cost me a lot of money to have to come to him to say it's not red. It is red. Anyway, so, but I managed to make that kind of special because, of course, anytime I'd mentioned it, Questions. Oh, what's my shirt look like? What does this look like? What does that look? I can tell the difference. What's the color of a flag? What's the color, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I remember I had this girlfriend who I got along with very well, and she was very bright, but obviously lacked a certain element, which is what made her intriguing. And I remember she once asked me a question: Hey Sam, the house of my door is green. You can't see green. Can you see right through the door and tell me what's going on? Okay, so that was kind of a frivolous question, but there were a lot of questions that came up and issues that came up, and it made me kind of difficult. I can tell you just a couple of cute stories. Um, I have a car, okay? It's a red car. I wouldn't know whether it is or it's not quite. It could be orange if you want to tell me. Where, where's your car in Israel? You own a car in Israel? And I didn't want to buy it. It was foisted on me because they had no other model. I wanted a white one. And then they wanted to charge me extra, and I said, forget it. Not only don't I see it, but I don't care for it. But at any rate, I identify my car by having a bunch of magnets on it, okay? I got some magnets from some kind of talk show, and people assume that's me. And it's kind of interesting. It's a brand-new car with these ridiculous magnets running around. That's how I identify it. And in Israel, which is very security-conscious, I have been stopped by cops a couple of times, asking him to asking me to explain why I'm going around with this magnet. We were refused entry to the Malchamol by the guard who said, ah, looks suspicious. <laughs> when I explain it to them, they get all excited. But otherwise, that's what happens. But let me tell you some interesting issues that have come up, okay? Um, my grandson in kindergarten, right? So he's there. He's a bright kid. He's colorblind, thanks to me. That's my daughter's son. I, I have done that. I've perpetrated that to some of my daughter's sons. Very nicely. And the first issue is, there's something wrong with your kid. Get him evaluated. He doesn't know how to uh, reason because he can't even stack blocks. And this has come up a couple of times. My daughters had to go there and yell and say, no, my son is very intelligent. Just stop hassling him. And I've had it in other, in other, with other grandkids as well. And unfortunately, the way it's handled, um, the kids sometimes 
get this feeling that there's something wrong with them and they really are not smart and they're not capable. And it has some bad effects. I mean, I want, I know one of my grandchildren, I believe is still battling that kind of um, inferior position that was placed on him because of the assumption that he's not too bright, he's not with it. And I've seen like another grandkid of mine who also has my gift, who basically felt terrible about himself playing a certain game of Candyland where he was saying, you know, this is a very hard game because I don't really know what block it's supposed to go on. It's difficult. And I can tell you professionally, quite a few psychological tests that are out there are based on reasoning. And a lot of it has to do with color grouping. I can't administer those tests without crib sheets. I have little symbols on them that tell me what colors they are and how to score them because I can't do it myself. So again, I try to make it into an asset, but I deep down, it feels like something is wrong. Yes. So I'm surprised, you know, and 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 this is interesting because, of course, I've known that both you and Menachem are colorblind and I've talked to Menachem and I've tried to actually ask you what it is that you see and how you perceive it. Um, and, and I've always found it, you know, an interesting anomaly. And I never really thought about uh, these, these effects that you're talking about. And what disturbs me hearing this is we've been so ultra sensitive to cr- crafting situations where even people should feel it's gender neutral. Uh, we don't want to uh, hurt anyone. Why hasn't there been more to, to minister to the colorblind of our population and have Candyland games that were, are within their spectrum or have, why is it that we're sort of, I understand in Satmar or, or in, in, in Sharon Springs or in, 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 in Williamsburg, wherever it was, that it wasn't, it never came up, the difference between red and green and purple, et cetera. But it would seem like in the modern uh, communities, why wasn't there more done to say, well, this is for our, and without making the person feel bad, it sounds like there's something, there's been something missing here. It sounds like, and, and as you can say, you can't, as much as we wanted to have a light aspect of the program, there's nothing light about a child feeling that they're not intelligent or they're not able to be part of games. I think it's, it, it borders on the very serious. Why hasn't okay. more been done? I think it's part of something called handicapism, which means that we all have a negative attitude towards people who have any kind of disability. The only way we've progressed is through militant noisemaking. And I remember when handicapism started becoming an an issue celeb, I was once at, at the university and there was somebody in the wheelchair and I held the door open for her. And I got the beating of my life. Abuse. What the heck do you think is wrong with you? I can do this myself. I don't want your help. That kind of stuff helped a lot. There aren't enough militant people out there who are colorblind because it doesn't feel that handicapping. I can tell you I've written to the APA 30 years ago saying you're coming out with new visions of psychological tests. Why don't you just alter color A, B, C, and D, and then people like me, psychologists like me, can administer these tests. Let's make it clear again that you are able to discern certain shades and and therefore you and and, or i have a colleague or somebody in my family who pre-labels them just like they pre-label my clothes and then i know what to administer using my cheat sheets but i can tell you for example when my children moved to texas and you were the rabbi there right yes right they moved to texas and the first time i came to houston and i rented a car and we're leaving the airport and i stop and my wife says to me, Sam, why you stopped? I said, red light. 
She says, no, green light. So in other words, in New York or in Israel, the red light to me is orange and the yellow and the green are both white lights. So I go back orange and white. But in Texas, the shade is just a little bit different and their red and green are exactly the same to me. And I can imagine had it been the other way around, we could have totaled that car and done who knows what. It's just lucky that I had stopped and she told me that. And from then on, I knew that either she's with me in the car the whole time or I take my chances. I have to say, I did, took a lot of chance taking in Texas and they haven't caught me. But there, are, there is a, a, a whole world out there which is color sensitized. Um, I can tell you when I go shopping, right? And the person tells me it's the blue package right there. I say, excuse me. Or when I bring home all kinds of fruits and my wife yells at me saying, these are not fresh because they're not brown and not green and not yellow. I said, hey, beats me. So what I end up in a shopping store is going over to a kind lady and saying, excuse me, can you please help me? I can't see well. And that's how I select it out. But it's difficult. Or, you know, they look at me like the, the, the attendant says, over there behind the, uh, the green whatever. And I said, I don't see it. And they think I'm either trying to hassle them. I cannot get the product off. This is not ghastly. This is nothing like the terrible tragedies we've talked about. But it's quite interesting to live like that. And there's no question that it ends up hurting your ego. You end up getting hurt at a certain level. And then you have to compensate for it by, you know, dancing funny or using <laughs> flashing the lights or coming up with something which puts you out there. But unfortunately, children being raised in today's world don't quite have that capacity that we have as adults. So they start off really feeling bad, inferior, and then especially if you are in a peer situation where that can become actually the source of bullying because you are different and different in a kind of negative way. And if somebody has to be dumped on, you're going to be more of a candidate than somebody else. I'm sorry, getting getting into macabre again, but that's where I live. Yeah, well... Put it this way, it seems like, and I, I know nothing about science, actually, as listeners of this program know. <laughs> Somebody, by the way, was very happy about in our last program. Someone said, you floated this ridiculous theory from Nabokov, and Dr. Judy just says, no, you're wrong. <laughs> he was very happy that I was cut off at the knees with that. And, I've, and again, I, I, I profess to know nothing, but it would seem to me that what uh, the respect that I have for the scientific world, that they would be testing that can be done early enough to discern with some sort of responses whether a child is colorblind. And therefore, you wouldn't have a situation where your grandson goes to school and they think that there's something cognitively uh, backward with him. Why can't we make that standard protocol coming up with some way to figure out either with some sort of test in the mind or, 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 or something that you can actually tell. I don't know how, but there must be some way to work on that, that we'd be able to, to know what that markers are. So we know that your child is, right? Other than changing society and change, and, 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 and like when you said, making all stoplights be like they are in New York, as opposed to the way they are in Texas, maybe there's something we can do to intervene early enough that, that will stop it from becoming some sort of comic grotesque, uh, uh, handicap, which is what I think okay. So for, I mean, the first issue is that organized society does not care because they've not been called on the carpet for it. But you speak as this as if it's something, some kind of mysterious way. Colorblind testing takes roughly three minutes. 
It's a very much, now with the, with, the, with the internet, anybody can load it down. What essentially you have is you have a group of dots, let's say, that are red, and interspersed within the red group of dots is are a bunch of green dots that spell a certain letter or a certain color. Or for younger kids, have a shape of a snake or a box or whatever, and you ask them, what do you see? And they either say, I see nothing, which means they're colorblind, or they'll tell you, I see a three or a six or a four or five. There are some variations, so you need like four of these. Red, green, you need blue, yellow. And I can tell you that I have spared quite a few people the anguish of thinking that there is something wrong with their child because they're bringing him in for psychological testing. He's not doing well in school. Teachers are saying he's not fine. And I say, before we start... What number do you see? And I asked him three times. And I said, lady, you just saved yourself $8,000. Okay? <laughs> Your child is colorblind. And by the way, there is something that came out two years ago, which are glasses, corrective glasses that you can wear that correct colorblind, red-green colorblindness for 85% of the people who have it. And that's a blessing. It's a blessing. Oh, good. That's what we... So, so the, yeah. test, the but test... Let me, let me just ahead. tell you the, the sad part. For 15%, it doesn't work. And I can tell you which genetic mutation that is. The one that I have. Okay? So I remember once the, uh, the, the kids of our family threw a party for us in Lakewood, New Jersey. And we're there. And they whip out these glasses that they ordered on approval. Like, I pay a lot of money. And they give it to me. And they say, hey, but have a look at the grass. And I say, oh, it doesn't look like much. <laughs> and they give it to my brother. And the grass didn't look like much for him either. So it doesn't work for the Juni family, unfortunately. But it's a blessing. But it's again, it's not mysterious. These uh, colorblind tests are available for on the computer for free, or if you want to print them out, they'll cost you twenty-two cents for the four sheets of paper. And it's there, testable for any child who is above two years old who can just identify a shape or even trace the shape. And it's done. No, but society does not care until somebody gets very militant about it. I imagine if it ever gets to the point where it becomes a forensic issue, a high-powered forensic issue saying, I didn't see the light and therefore I sped the car. Like in Houston, if I would speed by car and I would hurt somebody really badly, a Hazrashel might kill somebody. If this were a case, I would present them saying, I did not see the light. Honestly, test me right now. I'll tell you the shtick I've had. I've had licenses in different states and in different countries. I have had quite a hard time getting a license sometimes because they show you a red light and a green light as a go before you ever hit the road. And I had to kind of um, hedge my bets there and get through it. I don't know if I've done a favor to society, but it gets problematical. Well, I know that in New York, you were the uh, quite the bicyclist, I know, that, uh, yes. and uh, – Maybe that was also a benefit. The fact that you had, the, the, you know, you were able to actually, besides getting the health aspects, right, you were able to actually take your time, ride your bike, and that probably didn't have the the problems of color blindness, uh, right, right? Because in those days, although at the before we actually made Aliyah, I got a ticket or two for passing lights. But before, and, and for many years, they did not hassle bike riders in terms of uh, obeying signs. But also, I do know the difference between a red light and a green light in many places, sometimes from the position. The position helps, although in Texas, they are horizontal rather than vertical. So I'm lost there. I don't know which way it is. But uh, no, I do know the difference because I know the difference between what I call orange and white. And that helps me. So whenever I pass a street light, I don't know whether it's a street light or a green light, but that's not so relevant. So I manage with that. 
Yeah, I guess, you know, one of the things we always say is that when a person uh, is saddled with some issue and he overcomes it, um, he becomes stronger. And, you know, I have a lemonade expert. What? They become, become an, an expert. Yes, lemonade. Right. lemonade. Right. But do you, lemonade. would you say being a person who has been with color blindness, would you say it's also actually spurred you to, to in, in some other creative fashion, other than pushing you to work harder than other people? Would you say having it makes you, let me explain it better. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by colors. You know, there are people who could go sit at a sunset and just you know, breathe it in, in in such a way where it almost overwhelms them. Uh, there are there are sometimes when you see a palette of, of different colors. I'm sorry, I don't want to make you feel bad about this, but if you aren't colorblind, you can sometimes the colors can sometimes shock you uh, in their vividness. Is it possible that a person like yourself who doesn't have that reaction has a certain strength because of it? Okay, I have two answers. That first of all, I very early on, got um, very attracted to logical positivism, which is a way, if you want to describe it, um, from um, a a scientific analysis of what thinking is like. It's a black and white kind of absolutist thinking, which is very helpful in terms of the hard sciences. That's where I was. I was in physics. I was in chemistry. So, in other words... Yes or no, black and white, like a brisker kind of lumbus. No, no room for any kind of philosophy. And I think that came from the fact that I was not appreciating the nuances of color at all. And then a second curio, which was really paradoxical, is that I, um, as part of my teaching, I became an expert in Rorschach. Rorschach is basically a psychological test which involves interpreting nuances of color to a very differentiated extent. Now, I came to this the way somebody who doesn't speak the language at all tries to analyze a language because I had no idea what they were talking about. And I sat with basically graduate students many, many, many hours asking them to explain to me what is it that they see, describe it, etc. And I ended up understanding the science of color perception, which I couldn't personally experience except in certain shaded areas. I understood it to such a sophisticated degree that I came up with colossal scoring methodology and interpretation of Rorschach stimuli, which others never discovered because they never bothered sitting down like somebody who's totally unfamiliar with something and starting from scratch. You know, by the time you start analyzing colors, you have a history of perceiving them. It's like much easier to understand a language if you're Latin for the first time than if you've been speaking English the whole time and then trying to figure out the rules of grammar. You have to work backwards. But if you're learning it for the first time, you can learn actually in an actual course. So I was able to come up with some differentiations of color that are kind of interesting. But my negative conclusion is that I think basically that it's jaded and dulled my entire appreciation of aesthetics. If you look at my taste in music, I would call it jaded and extreme. Subtleties, nuances, a good piece of Mozart, a good good handle. I wouldn't give you a nickel for it, okay? And yet, when it comes to certain aspects of the blues, certain hard rock, I understand that. It's booming, it's loud, it's either yes or no. And I'm not saying that as a positive attribute, because the subtlety of the arts, the subtlety of understanding music, 
is something that obviously enriches people's lives to no extent. I have colleagues who, uh, that is the main highlight of their life. They're regularly going to a symphony. They're understanding, analyzing a piece of music. I don't have it at all, but I think I'll give you something else. My taste in cooking and in food. Jaded. There's no question this jaded. I go, I go for, I don't go for subtleties. I go for harsh tastes, the equivalent of black and white in seeing. Wow. So I think in that case, I think in personality, it metastasizes and takes you over. It makes you into someone who is obviously predestined not to look at the finer shade of things, yes or no. I would make a very good, let's say, reactionary judge in the totalitarian society. Things are right and wrong. This is good. This is no good. Shades, shades of gray. You're not talking to me figuratively, and you're not talking to me in terms of applying shades of gray to other judgments as well. So that's kind of a okay, you, you, brush. Well, you've really, you've uh, look. First of all, I wanted to uh, uh, refute or at least disagree with something you said in the very top of our episode when you talked about how much brighter Menachem is than you. As someone who has spent many hours with both of you together, of course, I might not be a big maven, and maybe Menachem has been hiding from me uh, the the extent of his brilliance, but you don't have what to worry about in terms of saying Menachem is so much more. That's one thing. But Where, uh, where were you 60 years ago? <laughs> you could have told me this. Okay. I can't live it down. Okay? okay. Well, I can tell you, as someone who has spent hours with both of you, especially since the since we started this podcast, and we spend a lot of time together, as you know, not only recording but also doing a lot of editing and stuff afterwards. So I've spent a lot of time with both of you, and and again, I don't see any great great gap of of of, of intellectual power between either of you. But what you're saying now, let me. Hey, I will wager that we have a 15 spread in IQ. Okay? For the record. Have, so you, have you ever administered Menachem the IQ test? No, I would never administer anybody an IQ test whom okay. I know. As Mena- okay, so uh, let's see if Menachem and you take an IQ test. We'll see what will happen. So, <laughs> well, first of all, Menachem at this point, it might not be the same Menachem that he was uh, years ago. You've all, but taking cognizance into consideration, uh, but that's not really what I want to, I want to question you on this because you're saying the fact that you weren't able to discern, and I've, I've heard you say this before, to discern colors uh, the way others do has caused you also not to uh, be able that somehow the same capacity to discern the difference between different styles of music, different subtleties in classical music and yeah. certain types of uh, aspects, which others can wax on for hours about, about what the difference between Beethoven and Mozart is or things like that. You can't do that. You say. I wouldn't give you a penny for a high quality wine versus some cheap tequila. Right. right, which even goes even further. Now, I guess my question here is, and maybe, again, it comes from my knowledge of these things. I always thought that, and, and I'm going to mention someone specifically who I think is great at this. I thought when people are blind, which is completely blind, it actually um, strengthens some of the other senses. Uh, and, if, and I would say in terms of music specifically, I'll mention Stevie Wonder. Who, um, who lost his eyesight. I don't know if he ever, I don't think he was born blind, but he lost his eyesight. And he is, of course, one of the greatest musicians. Think, of, Be- think of Beethoven. Think of Beethoven. Beethoven who lost his hearing, I understand. Sure. Um, but again, sure. there... Yes, so I think there's a difference between not having a sense, which forces you to compensate, 
versus not having the subtlety, which basically forces you into a mindset saying there's nothing going on. A blind guy knows he's blind. A deaf guy knows he's deaf. Someone who like me, who hasn't seen colors, but then doesn't become really subjectively, phenomenologically cognizant until later on, the first attitude is, cut out these ridiculous things. It means nothing. And essentially, what I would say is it spreads to the um, nuances of aesthetics. And there we're talking, not perception. I can see a car, I can see something, I can see a rough color or a shade, but nuances in color are not meaningful to me subjectively. And then it generalizes defensively, obviously, by saying, no, it's not really... What really matters is X or Y. What I can do, that's what matters. What I cannot do does not matter. So therefore, subtlety, and it just spreads across aesthetics. Okay? I feel it. Because I, I, any kind of aesthetic issue I have, or any kind of aesthetic appreciation I have, is always either or, or at the extremes. Maybe even liking both extremes, but not the subtleties. And if some, you know... So what, I, I think I think I think a study might be made of other colorblind yes. individuals if they also develop the way you did. Precisely, and I tried to do it a couple of times. Unfortunately, the graduate students I picked for it were not gifted enough. What I should have done is chosen colorblind graduate students to do it. Okay, <laughs> and I uh, the problem is that most of the graduate students who decided to work with me were women. Um, women make up. Uh, 0.04% have colorblind people, which are very hard to find. So, yeah, I tried this. I flopped a couple of times. So, unfortunately, so, we'll have to do it in the next reincarnation. Well, I think that you've given us a lot to think about in terms of this the vision of Dr. Sam Juni. I think you've also really punctured the, 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 the balloon metaphor of let's have a colorblind society. Because, you know, it really isn't so simple, Um, you know, because obviously that's just a term that we use uh, to be able to treat all people with the same amount of dignity and respect. But if we would actually talk about at least your type of colorblindness, that might lead to a society, like you say, that's extremely one way or the other, as opposed to the very Believe me, you don't want more people like me running around. You have enough. (laughs) Well, I'm happy that you're there at the at the outlier and the edges. And as one younger child to another, uh, I would say that I think the the, the deck of cards that uh, or the hand of cards that God dealt you, uh, what you've done with it, I think has enriched the world and definitely enriched us over the last couple of months. So that's about it, my friends, uh, for uh, this week uh, and a little lighter foray, but I think a very important one as well. Take care, Dr. J, and we'll see you perhaps on the other side in another edition of Standing in Two Worlds. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 